0: I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the RASA. This is for the RASA. This
1: is the reality dysfunction.
2: Hi, my name is Carolina Sanchez. Uh, I'm from Redlands, California, which is in
3: the Inland Empire.
2: My name is Ernesto Morales. I'm from Prescott, Arizona.
3: Uh, Dan Sosa, I'm from and in Saginaw, Michigan.
4: Reiner Delgado, I'm in uh, Saginaw, Michi- Michigan currently, and I am from Lansing, Michigan.
1: Hi, Alex Lozada, and I am in Brooklyn, New York.
4: That's Carlos Hernandez coming from San Anto, Texas.
5: My name is Juan Carlos Vega. I live in Washington, D.C., and I'm originally from San Juan, Puerto Rico.
2: Well, I want to thank everybody uh, for being here today. I particularly want to thank uh, our guest, Carlos Salimán. I met Carlos when he and I were both doing our doctoral programs at Michigan State University. I was in uh, American Studies Department, and Carlos was in the History Department. Uh, my favorite story about Carlos is in the middle of the winter once, I, he was surrounded by what appeared to be about 20-foot snowbanks, and he was kind of looking around And I walked up to him quite unexpectedly. We met in the middle of this. And I could see that he didn't know which way to go. (laughs) I was like, bro, the snow is like as tall as these buildings. (laughs) It was crazy. It was a crazy moment. And it was cold as hell. And that's East Lansing, Michigan. But Carlos has, after graduating with his PhD in history from Michigan State University, has gone on to do some pretty remarkable things. And so I'm going to turn it over to him right now. And uh, you know he can tell us what he has going on, and then we'll come back
6: into the conversation a little bit later. Go ahead, bro. Sure, man. Thank you for having me. I'm grateful to be asked to participate. My name's Carlos Salaman. I'm originally from Nicaragua. I was born there, but my family migrated when I was three years three years old. So I grew up in San Francisco, California. Spent my upbringing in the Mission District. You know, I was there till I was about 15. Then uh, we eventually moved out and. We're in Delhi City for a little bit, but just in the Bay Area generally, right right there in the Bay. And then went to college to UC Santa Cruz. I'm a banana slug. Uh, like Todd said, from there I went to Michigan State to go pursue my PhD in history at Santa Cruz. I had gotten my BA in history in Latin American and Latino studies. And then I went to Michigan State to go study Latin American immigration, mostly from Nicaragua to Costa Rica, right? And my dissertation was about Nicaraguan immigrants in the 30s and 40s and examining labor movements and their participation in the Civil War in 1948. So, yeah, that's my brief background, right? Um, But very much trying to figure out how to make an impact in life, right? I think that that's a journey that we're all trying to be on. So initially for me, I thought I was going to be a professor. So I was in Atlanta for a couple of years because my wife, who was also at michigan state got her phd in psychology and she ended up working at the cdc for a couple of years you got a postdoc there and so i was wrapping up my dissertation teaching at a school there and then when i was getting on the market i applied everywhere i'm sure like todd knows you apply anywhere and everywhere trying to get these academic gigs and i landed one in alabama which to be honest was always the place i said i wouldn't go to when you're <laughs> still dreaming about how uh, where you're going to be a professor because you know i got into this because I wanted to do what professors did for me in terms of, like, teaching me about my, my own history, right? Like, it was cool going to college and never hearing about Nicaragua ever in a classroom, never hearing about revolutions and the movements and U.S. intervention. So I wanted to kind of spark that for kids as well. And then I end up in Alabama at Sanford University, a predominantly white conservative Christian university. And so I'm teaching kids that are very different from me in terms of upbringing, in terms of often ideology and in terms of even just religious belief right so it, w- it was a trip but it was a good experience it was a great experience i learned how to speak uh southern baptist while i was there right <laughs> which is its own thing and then the best part about it was you know the latino kids that were there because there were still some there right and so when i got there we started a, i helped the kids their uh, students there start a latino student organization right and just got them into understanding why they needed to create space for themselves as well. Right. And what the benefits of that are. And so that was a real cool experience. And that continues to this day, even after I left, but immediately I knew that I was going to have to find ways to plug into the community because Sanford wasn't going to be the place in terms of that, besides working with some of the students, which were still very much a small part of the population. Uh, so I connected to all of the organizations that work for Latinos in the area. Right. So there's three real three organizations. There's a, uh, ACIJ, which is the Alabama Coalition for Immigrant Justice. They're an immigrant rights group, right? So I started volunteering with them and just seeing what they were doing. Then there's Adelante, the Alabama Worker Center, which was just getting started when I got down here. So I met their director and everything. And so I eventually joined their board and they're doing really great work. I mean, they're doing stuff for laborers, day laborers, uh, domestic workers, uh, but also trying to shut down the detention center here in Alabama right, and, and wage theft, right, so they're all about just making sure that folks are pushing for their rights. And then there's there's HECA, there's the Hispanic Interest Coalition of Alabama, and that's where I work now, right. So I started volunteering with them, I became part of their board, eventually became chair of the board, had a really good relationship with the executive director, and after five years, I started thinking, like, where do I want to be? Where am I going to make the most impact for my family, my community, right, and, and how to do that and so really for like many of us November 2016 the election happens Trump wins and and I'm in a university in a place where a lot of people are celebrating that right and so that was that was different and so then I was like well I gotta get the fuck out of here and so I I just started just having conversations with with my wife and, and other people about like okay what does this look like? I, I spent a decade, over a decade, trying to do this thing. I get the tenure track gig. I'm a professor. But now I'm thinking, I don't want it, right? Because it's not exactly what I thought it was going to be. So... Oh, it's so not what you think it's going to be. Right? <laughs> it's not. So then, I, you know, the executive director, though, she was like, man, you already spent all your time here anyway. Why don't you get paid for it, right? And so... Uh, she created the deputy director position for me, right, in, in a lot of ways. So it was going to be an experience because I didn't have management experience. But all of a sudden, I lead a team of about 17 people that are report to me, right? And But it's been the most rewarding thing I've ever done in terms of I, w- I get to work with the community. Every day looks different. Like just today, I've talked to the chair of the Better Business Bureau here locally, right? they try and reach out to Latinos, right? I've also talked to a congresswoman about advocating for someone who needs help getting her mom back into the country, right? I've talked to uh, just folks about how do we distribute food still? How do we have testing sites? So every day we're advocating and trying to figure out ways to better serve the community. So it was the best decision I ever made, but it's, 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 it's tough, right? Because you see, in Alabama, we're still feeling the remnants of anti-immigrant laws. I mean, like Utah and Arizona, right? There's SB 1070s gone, but I'm sure there's still some remnants. Like in Alabama, there's HB 56, and there's still things that complicate the lives of immigrants here. That's also what spurred me to say, okay, so I, I work at an organization that does advocacy. We provide direct services. We provide immigration services. Uh, we do a lot of business stuff, like in terms of we just started a micro-lending program, trying to change people's and empower them both financially and civically. But what else can I do? And so then folks were like, well, maybe you should run for city council, right? And in Homewood, Alabama, right? Homewood is the suburb that's right outside of Birmingham. Right, that's where I live. And so we're right there on the edge of Birmingham. The city council as it's currently made up is 100% white. Right, so there's no people of color on city council when people were telling me, like, if we're going to do this, then I want diversity and inclusion to be the number one thing that we're going to talk about, that that's what needs to change, that we need to have representation on city council to really better serve all the residents that live in Homewood. And so we did that. I mean, luckily, it's a short campaign season, thank God, because I don't think I could have done more than eight weeks of it. because It's a lot of knocking on doors and talking to folks and facing some challenges. But we did that, and just last Tuesday, I won. I was elected with a great team of supporters and, and it was a trip, man. Like it was just, it was good. And so now me and there's a black woman who was running too, sister and she, she won. So now we're going to be the two people of color on city council that has, hasn't been a thing for a while Homewood. That's just, you know, briefly a lot of the stuff that I've been involved in the last 15 years, right? 20 years.
4: Hey Carlos, could you talk to us a little bit about the
6: demographics of a uh, Homewood yeah. Population wise, it's 80% white, 20% people of color, uh, mostly African American. We have about 4%, which is actually reflective of the overall state population in terms of Latinos, 4% Latino, and then so about 16 15% African American, right? And then you have some Asian and some and, and other groups, right? But predominantly white. So that was another like uh, thing that we had to navigate. I was lucky to count on the support of a lot of people, but I, I reached out to some very influential white folks who were down with what I was trying to do, right? And that was, you need your allies, right? They need to be like, I'm like, come on, we're going to do this, right? And and they were very supportive, and that's that's that had to be a part of the equation.
4: Now, did you how you found support right now? I'm wondering when you were when you first started teaching, and you were teaching predominantly a uh, white, uh, students, how did they accept your perspectives? What was the, what was their take on how you were framing the
6: conversations? Um, you know, I think for them it was, it was challenging sometimes, right? It was challenging for me because I had to figure out how to reach these students and kids in in, in ways that they weren't just going to be receptive, right? Because uh, in a lot of ways I was challenging a worldview that they had been raised in, right, Um, and so just even the narrative, right, and when you teach Latin American history, right, I mean just talking about, let's talk about Christianity, right, and the role of Christianity and and imperialism and and in terms of colonialism, and so that was just like pushing them on that, but it was interesting because you're at a university that's Protestant, Southern Baptist affiliated, so for them, it's easy to be like, oh, those are the Catholics, and so then I also learned that Catholics aren't aren't Christians in, in this particular worldview sometimes, right, um, and, and it's a trip and I'm like, whoa, 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 I mean, you guys are forgetting the whole 15, 1500 years of this, but, <laughs> um, it was, it was a challenge. And then it also led to great conversations. And when you had those breakthroughs, they were really rewarding, right. In terms of just saying, okay, well, maybe there's a different way of looking at this. Right. I mean, I also taught what they call cultural perspectives, but really is a cortex, uh, freshman course series, right. One and two, which is basically Plato. out from Plato to NATO, Right. And, and you talk to these students, right. And present these ideas. And, and sometimes they would come up to me and they're like, you're shaking my faith. Right. Cause this is, these are a lot of kids came here because they wanted a Christian education. And I'm like, well, maybe it needs a little strengthening. Right. It needs a little, uh, you need to set stronger roots because like, these are real historical um, incidents that you have to grapple with. Right. And, and if, and, and so we can't shy away from these conversations. So they were good, man. And, and and to be honest, since I've left, it's these white kids that will hit me up, right, and just be like, "Man, you you made an impact on how I see the world, right?" I mean, the Latino kids too, and the black kids too. But some of these kids, they're just like they had never even considered some of these things. And and I think that for me, it's rewarding to have made an impact on their life, both positive, and they made an impact on mine, and that it really made me polish my own tools as to how i taught right and how i reached out to them and continued at it
4: carlos do you have anything more to add about teaching the liberal agenda in uh, college <laughs>
6: <laughs> tell me more about that what do you mean by the liberal agenda <laughs> no i'm just parroting that uh
4: those, those little talking points that keep coming out of
2: carlos you're absolutely right man and what really has really kind of astounded me over the years is um you know, the Latino kids and the black kids, they, they do keep in touch. Sometimes these white kids, man, I mean, you really rattle their cage and they, they can't forget it. It's interesting, you know, four or five years later, I mean, they're still, you know, sort of like reaching back out to you and, you know, what do you think about this and all these different things. I I want to ask you a question uh, about the election. You said that it was uh, your cam- your campaign season was eight weeks, yeah. which is good. I, I agree with you because- um, oh. These long drawn out campaigns, man. I mean, they're brutal. But what I was really wondering is that, you know, now that now that you're elected, what do you see as sort of like the, the future in terms of diversity there in Alabama? I mean, we know that the South has been for, you know, at least a decade now, like the fastest growing region for Latinos in the country. Your election to the city council is absolutely an, an indicator of that growth. And so, you know, what, what do you see happening where you're at in the next couple
6: of years? Well, you know, I think that it's it's interesting because I worked with a, a friend of mine, right? He did all my branding, right? And logo and how we were going to position everything, right? But we were like full forward on terms of like, I'm an immigrant, right? The narrative was like, Carlos is an immigrant. He's invested in this community, but like, look at all the things that have happened, right? And that we need to address these issues. Right? We, we, we didn't shy away from the fact that I was not from home, right? And so I think that that was... I told him like I want to. If I'm gonna win, I want to win on the fact that I'm. I get to be me, right? And and if I lose, that I get it's because I was me, and that's okay, right? And that we're just gonna roll with that. Um, and he and he was he was cool about it, man. Like you know, we put it in our promotional materials and everything, the fact that I, I, I identified as an immigrant who became an American citizen, but that these were issues that were really important to me. And I think that it's reflective of the fact that folks see that like the community is changing, right? Alabama often still frames race in a very dichotomous way between black and white. And that there's very little space made in the conversation for Chicano, Latino, Latinx, however you want to frame it. And the term de jour here, Hispanic, right? Like, I mean, it's still the, the term that's predominantly used here. And so, you're seeing an influx of of people who have come to the South, right? You know, North Carolina is a real clear example of that boom, but you see it here in Alabama, especially in places where there's poultry processing plants, the community's growing, right? And in fact, in a lot of small towns in Alabama, they would die. They'd be dead if it hadn't been for immigrants, right? Those towns were saved by the immigrant population. They were saved by folks opening small businesses. Um, And so, you see the changing structures too, right? Like, there's a huge just down the street from where I work. There's a huge Mexican supermarket called Mi Pueblo. That wasn't here like 10 years ago, right? And so that's just like a, a sign of like we're here, right? And this is where people are shopping, and we're making dramatic changes as to where people can go. Um, there's a there's a radio station La Jefa, right? That reaches out to the community. There's making inroads. And, and so when people talk about taco trucks on every corner, man, that's like the dream, right? Like that's, that's what we're trying to make happen here. And, um, you see that. And, and folks are like, okay, this is different. Right. But it's, it's really changing how people see us. So, but to that point, we, we had some presence. We have kids in the schools, right? The demographics are shifting that some of these kids in certain of these towns are becoming 25 to 40% of the population. So it's, a uh, rising tide, but we have no political power. There's no political representation, right? And so let, let, let's just be honest and let's just say it, right? I'm as palatable as can be in a lot of ways, right, as to in terms of who can win an election, right? And I'm very much aware of that, right? It's my level of education, where I live, my, my class position, all these things, can be leveraged in, 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 in my favor to try to win an election in a city that's 80% white. And so how we positioned that, how we framed the arguments, how we presented the importance of accountability, leadership, community building, and diversity and inclusion was very much framed in a way of this guy is has these ideas about diversity, but he's also very bright, right? He's very accomplished, right? He's very, you know, and, and so you have to, Leverage everything about yourself, family-oriented, right? You know, my child, I have an eight-year-old daughter and, and my wife. And and so we're invested in the community. She goes to the public school here. And so I think that all those things had to be a part of, of how we were going to win that campaign. But back to the original point, we needed representation, right? And there's no, I'm not sure any Latino has ever won political office. Not about We're still doing research, actually, to figure out, like, if the, if, if I am the first or not.
3: But I'm that was my question to. for you, too, uh, Carlos. Uh, my dad, you know, here in Saginaw, he was the first elected Latino to city council. He was on city council for 12 years, ran three elections. And uh, I, I was by him for a lot of that. And I, I know the shoes you're walking in right now. And I know it's not easy. Probably got a lot of people coming at you expecting things. But I guess what I kind of wanted to know is during the process of that election it sounds like it was a short election um, cycle or whatever, campaign um, process what was the was there any kind of opposition rhetoric about you and your background during that process?
6: Oh absolutely, right Um, you know I uh, there was some posts, especially towards the end where where I think they figured out, oh shit he might actually win um, that folks started making some, like, former city councilors, right, people who used to be on city council, these uh, older white dudes, were like, well, he doesn't represent our values, right? We, we better vote for his opponent, like, the person I ran against, who was by, um, um, she was nice, right? I had no bad say about her, but some of her supporters started coming out, like, she's from Homewood, she represents our values, Carlos clearly does not, right? He Because I also was talking about affordable housing, and they're like, he just wants to bring Section 8 housing in Homewood and re- destroy all the residential areas. Um, and then there was questions about, like, because, you know, I, I had made several posts prior to announcing my candidacy about Black Lives Matter, right? So this notion that I was anti-police and, and, and wasn't going to support public safety in Homewood and that I just want crime and apartments, and I actually went, I went door-to-door, right, in both the apartment complexes here, and in the houses, and I and I ended up at this one lady's house, knocked on her door, and she, well, she was actually outside gardening, right, in her front lawn. And even before I said anything, so she like, "I'm not supporting you with everything you stand for, because you're going to destroy Homewood, right? You just want to bring those people here, and they're going to reduce our property values, and that's going to destroy our schools." So I, I support nothing you stand for. Those people,
7: wow. nice. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah.
6: yeah.
3: Is, did you just walk away after that or did it, uh, well, uh, you was a uh, conversation I, with it.
6: No, I engaged. <laughs> <Yeah. All right. laughs> I engaged, yeah. I was like, well, you know, I just want you to know that uh, I'm, I live in this community. My daughter is in this community. We have no interest in destroying this community, but we mm-hmm. do want to make sure that everyone has access to the great schools that you're talking about because they deserve to, right? Do I want to create more accessible housing so people can benefit from the great school system that we have? Absolutely, right? We may disagree on that front, front and you're able to vote for someone else, right? But, you know, and we talked actually for 10 minutes, and it was fascinating, because then she was like, you know, I was part of the 1961 uh, group that started Homewood City Schools. So she's telling me there is that she's part of the white flight from Birmingham, right? She's part of starting school systems so that their kids wouldn't have to go to school with black kids. Right? And so you make those connections, these historical connections, and she's defending it. She's very proud of it. And then she sees someone like me as like the antithesis of why she started the school system. Keep folks like me out.
5: Yeah. You live in the epicenter of the civil rights movement and where the Jim Crow was real. And to this day there's a lot of you know, those people, right? Rhetoric, not just in Alabama, but coming from the White House. So in that sense, you're fighting it face to face, and you were able to win as a city council. So I congratulate you on that and understanding that you are changing, you are part of the changing of the system from a 100% city council to that's white to some of them has or will have color on it and in that sense have you received any support you know as you were running from and in several layers from the latino communities or other communities of color from hispanic chicano latin organizations or businesses or leaderships that were supporting you not your, not just in your area but at the state and hopefully at the national level how did you you know receive if any because the reality is even though it's 80% white i wonder what the census 2020 is going to Say about the percentage of the population and how much Hispanics, Latinos have increased in Alabama and the South?
6: Absolutely. You know, I think, I mean, he is heavily involved in census, so we've been trying to get the word out and get folks counted because we want to make sure that our community is represented and we have an accurate count, right? We're convinced that there's more than the 4% that is currently the official count. And, and, and to be honest, like, my professional career is mostly rooted actually in Birmingham, I'm on the board of the Civil Rights Institute here, the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. I'm on the board of the Literacy Council. I'm on the board of Red Mountain Park. These are all more Birmingham entities. But that also meant that I had established a lot of networks and partnerships with folks and a lot of uh, Black folks, right, that were really supportive of my campaign, right? And so that was, like, really at the root of who I knew I was going to have to count on support-wise, right? In terms of just making sure that what I was saying, so one of the things I did do when I started campaigning, right, I asked around who should I talk to in Homewood, right, about running this campaign, and the in terms of what I was running for, and so one name that kept on coming up was this guy who had ran in twenty twelve, black guy, young guy, about my age, right, and lost. And so the first thing I did to was was reach out to him, and I asked him to be on my committee right? Because I wanted to see, okay, what was your experience? What, what do you think you did, right? What were the challenges? Where are the landmines? And we had a fantastic conversation. And from there, what I did was uh, I had a bourbon night, right? I reached out to some influential black men, right? About our experiences here in Homewood and in the surrounding greater Birmingham area, right? And so I brought in like, three black dudes, a Latino guy who's my barber, actually, who's my barber slash DJ. He DJed my birthday party, right? Because uh, he's from Cali, from LA, so he just knew how to fade me up real quick. Like I didn't have, there was no need for a long conversation. I was like, but him and this Indian American guy and the white guy who was running my, my campaign committee, because so I wanted him to hear these experiences and why it was important to run from a perspective of a person of color, Right? And so that was, like, that informed how I was talking about things. And even, like, when I was um, getting challenged on stuff, stuff, they were the ones who were like, look, man, you got you to gotta win first. You might want to pull back here a little bit. You can't – because I would write stuff. Like I said, I'm going to post this. And, like, I don't know, man, if you want to win, you might want to post that after the election, right? And, and so they, they were kind of like my sounding board about these kinds of issues. And, and that was really beneficial. So support-wise, I outraised every single candidate right? In terms of funding. Like we put out a, a pretty good campaign, fundraising campaign, right? And so we would we use Venmo. And so that came in locally big, right? But also regionally. And then the good thing about being someone who's been just about everywhere, growing up in San Francisco, up to Michigan for a decade, Atlanta for a couple of years here, I had love coming from everywhere. Right? And, and they were just really happy to see me do it. And so that was the the best part of running was the outpouring of support from all these this lifetime of relationships and friendships
5: any but, national latinx organization supporting you or at the state level
6: not not officially okay. right but i had several organizations people working or like just like hey man how can, how can i chip in sure sure okay thanks and so they Did and so they did but uh the outpouring of support like that from all my networks and just also I have to say, like the people here, right? Like they voted for me still. Because I'll be honest, on election day, you to viejito blanquito, right? I was like, they're not gonna vote for me, right? <laughs> they're not voting for me. And yet they did. They did, right? And so I think that's a credit to um them as well as giving me a shot. Um
4: that that kind of is like leading into the question I wanted to ask, Carlos, is how much of the support do you think you actually got, you know, that you got, you had to be significant from the actual, the, the white community there. Absolutely. And so how were you able to, to, to bridge that? Like, what do you think was a thing that made them say, okay, I, I've never had the opportunity to ever vote for a Latino, but I'm going to go ahead and vote for this Latino,
6: you know, or what was it? I mean, was it even that? What do you, what do you think did it? You know, I think it's just building relationships and really just, giving myself the opportunity to sit face to face with someone. Right. And just say, these are my idea. This is what I think is important. Right. And of course, you know, you also have to root it in what matters to people every day lives. Right. Like if you think about labor, right. Talk about identity and you could talk about disparities. Right. But also at the end of the day, people want their sidewalks. Right. You're going to say like, and so my position was like, look, I'm an advocate. This is what I do every day for my community. Let me be an advocate for our ward, right? I will fight harder than anyone, right? And if you want these sidewalks and you feel that they've, you've been ignored, then I'm gonna fight for those sidewalks, right? And so just like connecting my real lived experience and professional experience to saying, this is a translatable, transferable skill, right? That we can use on city council, right? But also, again, building those relationships with influencers, in the white community in Homewood, right? And reaching out to those folks and then having them talk to their networks about, okay, do you have any questions about Carlos? He like come meet him, right? So I had a couple of events where I would just go to someone's house and they would bring other friends and then we'd have questions. And and most of the time by the end of those conversations, people were like, all right, man, I'm gonna vote for you. Mm.
4: So the flip side of that question is, what, uh, what support did you receive from the Latino community there? Like, what did you mean to, to the Latinos in the town?
6: So I think it's a trip, right? Because I, you know, you get these lists, right? These voter lists. And so you get these lists. And so I divided them by race, by neighborhood, by housing or apartments, right? And so there was actually about 100 eligible voters that were Latino, right? So that we print out 100 <laughs> messages and then we went to every single door and hung them. Right. In Spanish. Everything that I did on Instagram was both in Spanish and English. Right. And so no one else was doing that. So just knowing that that I was going to make sure that they were being reached to. Right. Whether they were bilingual or not, that we were putting our material in in, in both languages Um, and just making sure that we were talking about these issues. And so I reached out to Latino News. Right. Latino News, actually, the newspaper, the local newspaper here. And they interviewed me. And we had we had a conversation in Spanish about what why it was important to run a representation. So you try to do all these things and you reach out to the community. And then it's funny because I work at HICA and so people come to the building all the time. So someone came just last week on Friday, and you know, he was looking for a service, and then he was like, oh, like You so Carlos Aleman, right? And then he's like, Oh, Carlos Aleman de Homewood. And I'm like, Yeah, man, like, yes. And I see, him and he's like, He's like, "You nunca pensé que iba a ganar," right? Like straight up said, "Like I never thought you would win in Homewood," right? Like for him, he was like, "It's amazing that you won." Would you come meet my family? And to me, that's just, like you know, like that was like powerful to me, right? Like here was someone who saw me. He himself couldn't even vote, but he said his kids voted for me, right? And 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 just being being able to be a symbol for the community, and like I got from all over the state saying. Bro, like you did it, congratulations, right? And it's something like, like, like that's just even transcended Homewood that the, 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 the I won. And so I think that it's, it's important just being able to show people that you, we can do this. Hey, Carlos.
4: So in building that support, I'm looking at Hayward's uh, demographics and I'm seeing that about uh, 52% of the population is women, And you were going up against a white woman, a hometown girl. You know, so how did you make that inroad to uh, win that majority of the population and maybe even borders? And we understand the impact that they've had on national elections. Can you talk a little bit about that?
6: Sure. Um, you know, I think that, again, uh, in reaching out in my committee, I had a, a, a friend of mine. She's a white woman. She runs a local nonprofit. So we run in similar nonprofit circles in Birmingham, but she happens to live at Homewood with me. And so... Just having her on my committee, I think, was also helpful, right, in that we, we wanted some female representation. We had some white representation. We had black, we had Latino on our committee. And so just making sure that we were tapping in to these kinds of different communities and groups so that we can touch base. But also, you know, was working hard to, like, when, again, influential white women, right? Like, there's a neighborhood here called Forestbrook, and they really wanted a meeting. I was like, I will go to you right? I will talk to anyone, everyone. Um, You know, there's the National Organization for Women Voters, right? The the Voting League. And and so I filled out all their questionnaire early, sent that in, right? So women could read that if they were going to do it that way. Um, And it's just about building partnerships and relationships with folks and and trying to hear out their concerns and what they want. Um, And so we had another, I have another neighbor White woman, she runs a, she used to run a, the human World work for the human rights campaign here. And so just building those kinds of relationships and folks, but I can tell you, I also had like, again, a, a, on the day before the election, I had this really hard conversation with a white woman. Right. And she was very antagonistic towards me. Right. So it was one of those situations where she was like, well, I just don't agree with everything you stand for. And then she also, I used to work at Stanford, like I told you guys, and I had made a post three weeks before I announced my campaign, criticizing Stanford, right? About how they deal with race, right? So it was like two years after I left. So I went, you know, I held on for two years. But recently at Stanford, you've had black alumni and current black students call out the institution in light of the national conversation we're having around Black Lives Matter about their experiences with racism at the institution. And so a couple of them, former students of mine, were like, would you come out in support of us? Right, would you talk about your experience? And I was like, well, yeah, let's go. So I wrote this long ass post and it got like a lot of traction here locally, right? And so then I tweeted it and everything. So this woman comes out to me and she's like, cause I ended my post like saying like, uh, Sanford doesn't care about basically LGBTQ kids or they have failed LGBTQ kids, black kids, Latino kids and they have failed to address these things institutionalized, institutionally, plus some personal experience I had that were questionable. And then I ended it with knowing what I know and how things stand today, I wouldn't send my daughter to Sanford. And so she was like, how could you say that? How could you say you wouldn't send your daughter to Sanford? And I was like, so I told her, I was like, are you calling out the fact that I called out Sanford as opposed to why I called them out? I was like, you don't care about the racism? the homophobia, right? The, and you don't care about any of that. All you're mad about is that I called out this institution. And she just kind of shrugged at me. And I was like, well, you can vote for someone else. And the trip of it all was that she didn't even live in my ward. She couldn't even vote for me or against me. But she was out there, you know, making sure that she was going to tell me how she felt about me running. But what was also good that same day, because it was a it was a coffee meeting greet, right? So she came to my coffee meeting greet, have a cup cup of coffee and talk to Carlos. I had a friend of mine who's also a white woman stand right next to me. When this woman, she was like, "I know this is going to be trouble," and she told me later, she's like, "I didn't want her to misrepresent anything you said later." And so I was going to be a witness for you. And that's power right there. That's love right there, right? That's, that's someone saying, "I'm not going to let no one say anything that's false," right? And so you have to have allies like that that are willing to just say, I'm going to support you. It's about building relationships, and you're not going to win everyone over. And I knew I wasn't going to be everyone's cup of tea.
2: A lot of what you're talking about is, like, your success code switching and being able to go from different groups and kind of speak their language. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you have any trouble doing that, or did you get any aid or advice from the people around you to be able to effectively communicate with these different groups that you were
1: interacting with?
6: Well, you know, I think that a lot of my life, I've even said like, I'm like a chameleon, right? <laughs> like, it just depends on where I need to be, right? And trying to get things across, right? So, and that's not necessarily saying that I change who I am, but how I deliver my message is is, is different depending on who I'm talking to, right? I grew up in a very multiracial community and city in San Francisco, right? That uh, uh, That gave me access to a certain understanding of a, a urban perspective in terms of Latino urban, right? Like, which was different, right? Cause when I went to Santa Cruz, it was the first time I, I was seeing Latino cats who were very different from me, who came from the central Valley. Those kids were, came from farmer families. They were, they were dressed up in their like, you know, with their botas and their belts and their hats. Right. And I'm coming in here with my baseball cap, my flat bill. And it was like culture clash for us. Right, and, and and so you have to learn how to navigate that. So that was like even there, like how do you co-switch within your own? Because you know I'm Nicaraguan, so I've always been a a minority within a minority group, <laughs> right? And, and so that's always been a an interesting experience. And you know Todd and I have had a lot of conversations about chicanidad and Latinidad and how we all fit into that and how it, it functions and doesn't sometimes. And so then going to Michigan for me was a real uh, education in terms of where I was all of a sudden and like you too, Todd, like the only Brown person in these programs. Yeah. Right. And, and so you have to build relations with all these white colleagues that you now have. Yeah. And I started learning. I'm like, this dude talks different to this professor than I do. Cause I was like, talk to be deferential almost to a fault to the professors that I was working with. And I would never call someone that, not say, like, you know, I had a doctor, whatever, and all these guys were calling, all these, my white colleagues were calling the professor by their first name. I'm like, oh, you could do that? Right. And it was a trip to me at first, just learning how, okay, you, like, if you, how to be assertive in a certain, in a particular way, in a particular environment that is not considered disrespectful. But then you still got to go to your community and be like, don't whatever, right, to whoever you need to be respectful to because it's different, right? You can't apply these kinds of interactions. Unilaterally. So, I think to your point, you have to be able to code switch all the time. Well, and, and it's an ability, and, and you have to have the willingness to do it, right? Because it's not easy. And sometimes it's frustrating because sometimes you just want to say shit how it is, but you can't, right? And, and, and so, learning how to turn that on and off that's why you need to have some people in your life that you love that you can be really honest. About two, and just say, Look, this is what happened. This is what I had to say. And there are days where I'm like, I wish I would have said that better. I wish I would have held my stand, stood my ground a little harder there. Right. And and, and it's not a win every single time. Right. And so, those are those are inner battles that you have with yourself in terms of how do you present and advocate for your community community to the best of your ability. Right. And, And some days are really frustrating. And some days are really rewarding.
1: Yeah. Can you talk? So I also am an other within this other, right? That's what I always say. My parents are immigrants from Columbia, right? They met in Jackson Heights and in New York where every other, I think, Colombian immigrant comes to. So can you talk a little bit how it feels and how then do you take that power and, you know, we always talk about the lack thereof of political strength among Latinos, right? Because we're all, some of us don't want to be Latino. Some of us don't want to be Hispanic. Some of us are Chicano and some of us are everything else under the sun. So can you talk a little bit about that and how you feel that being another within the other, you're gathering the strength right? And and how do you do that, right? And especially going into this election in November.
6: And so, yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, Todd and I have actually talked about this years ago, right? Like, But, like, for me, like, I have to, on some point, rely on a Latinidad, however problematic, right, because there was so few Nicaraguans growing up, right? And so, I mean, we can talk about, like, yes, we should get together, and my own national history and my own immigrant story is very different, right, right, from other folks, especially if you're talking about Chicanidad and and – Concepts of, of Aslan and and, and, um, and even how those things have progressed over 150 years, right 175 years. Uh, whereas my immigrant and, and experience is one that's come out of the last 30 to 40 years, right with civil wars in Central America and, and, and coming out of those groups, and we have strength there, of course, right And so then you adopt or embrace different subsets, right. So I am Nicaraguan first. So if I'm talking to another Latino, the first thing you ever like we're like, one oh, say right? Because we always want to be like, boom, boom, boom. We're a little different, right? Boom. Nica, right? Nicaragua. Then from there, like in high school, right? It was, we're Central Americans, all these Central Americans. And so we're OTM, other than Mexican. Because the majority of the kids were Mexican, right? So then we're just like creating that, like, but then in front I of the
1: use kids, that, right? OTM, OTM.
6: And in front of the white kids, we're all Latino, right? And we're like, we're, 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 we're together on this, Right. And so just there, just trying to find where you fit. And then my family, right? Man, we in terms of just relationships, because there wasn't a lot of Nicaragua. There was some, but there wasn't a lot. Like we've intermarried to every single group that you can imagine. Right. So I have half Afghani cousins, half Filipino cousins, half black, half Jewish, half whatever, right? And we've and, and have Salvadoran, have Guatemalan and everything. And so for us, it's just always like the family unit is like that's where our Nicaraguanist comes out and, and is real fully, right? But even when I talk Spanish, my Spanish is is a trip. I mean, I think to like it's it just changes depending on who I'm talking to. And you all I only really sound Nicaraguan at this point when I talk to my mom. Right. But like like I hear in 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 Alabama, most of the folks I come in contact with are Mexican Americans, right? Or Mexican. And so there's a certain way to just make myself feel understood that I can adopt some aspects of that accent, right? But the same thing with Salvadorans and Guatemalans and Colombians who, you know, have a very particular lilt. My wife's Puerto Rican, so that comes out. But I don't do any of them really well, right? They're just just my best uh, approximation.
1: And you've talked about a lot about the white allyship that you've been really working on do you feel like there's any allyship that you've created with and maybe you talked about this before but it got pulled away for a work call with the black community or what's now the black lives matter movement and if you can talk a little bit and touch on what that means for you in alabama
6: sure um you know and and I'm happy to really just talk about Black Lives Matter, right? I think that we have to fully embrace that as a community también, right? Las vías negras importa, and really understand that there are parallels there. They're not the same, but there are parallels there that we need to be able to support and also fully um, embrace negritu within our own community, right? And so that's, that's what's really motivated me. Even at HICA, right, like we had an internal conversation about how we could be better about celebrating Afro-Latinidad within the the organization. That we have Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, Colombians who have, you know, we've had really good conversations. We do this thing now where we have wellness meetings, right? So every other week is not a work meeting, a programmatic report meeting. It's just like checking in. So when all this stuff, once we went through the working remotely, when Black Lives Matter was blowing up with George Floyd and Brian Taylor and everything. People were getting real emotional. And then we just had these really powerful meetings. Folks who I never had heard identify themselves as black were identifying as black. And that was really powerful, right? Like um, I had heard of them speaking about Dominican, right? That are not necessarily black, right? And, or mulata or how, and, and these words, right? That maybe we're, right, we're always there on the surface but we had never given space that expression to be fully articulated so one professionally we're trying to do a better job of that and then within the community i'm in birmingham so you know i i have a lot of relationships and friendships with black folks right and so that reaching out to them has been real critical um in, in trying to do this but i also don't want to pretend that i'm on the front lines of the black lives matter movement either right like i've gone to certain marches and protests right but in that space, I haven't been a leader, right? And so that's a, a, a moment of personal reflection that I can do more there as well, right? But you know, you build partnerships and you have friendships, um, but there's always more that can be done.
2: Yeah, I this has been this has been a really interesting conversation, Carlos. I, you know, I just want to kind of recap a few of the things that you've said for the people who are listening, because one of the things that we really do try to do with the podcast is talk about uh, organizing, you know, community organizing, electoral organizing, or really point that out. But um, I think that what you've done in the space, the, the short time that we've been talking here anyways, about this is really laid out a, a pretty serious game plan for how you win an election. I mean, congratulations, you know, the whole idea of, building or doing the outreach into the community, like finding out who the people are that, that you need to, to have on your side and then going and getting those people, right? Using them as sort of like a, you know, like some people call it a kitchen cabinet, right? Where you have these people that are like your your sounding board on, um, you know, taking the temperature of the community. I mean, all of that. I, I think the whole thing around Venmo is particularly
6: interesting. Um, I was not aware that you could do that. Well, but four think- years ago, Venmo wasn't a thing, right? So that's one one thing we first did research on. And all we we found out that as long as it's com- it's connected to your campaign bank account, you could do it. See, and that facilitated a lot of things. Oh yeah, that's that's no, that's game a game changer.
2: Yeah, you're right. <laughs> that's a well, game probably too, as changer. As long as
3: you report it too, when you you know to, yeah. every oh, yeah. campaign has to submit financial records, so sure. as long as you're able to record it, it probably makes that reporting easier.
6: Yeah. Oh, absolutely.
3: Yeah, yeah, my sister used to do that for my dad because she has a background in business and accounting. So, yeah, I mean, hey, sounds like a good thing to take advantage of.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's that's very smart. Very, very, very smart. So, no, I, I was just really, I was just listening while you were talking and just, like, really thinking about how you, you know, you hit all the marks for a very successful campaign.
6: Well, the one thing I didn't mention is that we started doing this thing live with Lowe's. So, we use Facebook Live also, right? And so I had a series of conversations. So the first thing I did, right, was like, so you, you know, you could talk about your series about the community. I had three local restaurants who live just down, the, who work or established just down the street from where I live, come and have a conversation with me about small businesses in Homewood. Had that conversation one hour long. And so people would go to those restaurants every day. And so you connect to the community that way. And you present yourself as the person who can bring people together and bridge them. The second conversation I had was with, the elementary school parents with the elementary school that's in my neighborhood. Right. But there I also made sure that I was going to have my friend uh, who was Trinidadian. Right. He's a Trinity immigrant and black. He's there. Right now we're talking about race. We can talk about race a little bit. Right. So I'm framing it only as a come a conversation about Hawke and the parents. But then I also bring in this white woman who is uh, renting in the community in a home. So now we can talk about renters. Right. And then, my friend, Trini, he's also renting the apartment. So now we're going to have this conversation about rent, right? And then I have my friend who's an African-American woman, and she works at a local power company. So but now we're talking about race from Black perspective, two immigrants, two renters, and we're going to get into all these kinds of conversations, right? Do
2: you think that skill that you have to be able to bring that comes from your time as a professor and your time as, like, teaching, bringing these different opinions into your own, like, conversation?
6: I mean, just to be able to... <laughs> be able to bring different arguments and perspectives and try to synthesize, right? Like as a historian, Todd knows about that word, synthesize, right. And, and create some sort of narrative together, right. That we're in this community together. And from there, then I was, I did something that was, you know, somewhat risky, but I invited every single candidate in my ward to come on the live with Lowe's and they did, right. Even my opponent. Right. And I was the moderator. Right, and so there like there I'm now now I'm situating myself as the person who just can bring all these people together, and after that, I was able to flip that and bring all the mayoral candidates to the Lightwood loves Wow, and so now, like even the local newspaper couldn't get all three candidates, I got all three candidates to have a conversation right and and so now like I, that's just like showing that I have some juice too, right? It legitimizes me as someone who can bring all these folks from homewood, and now it's not just West Homewood that's paying attention, it's all of homewood because we have the mayoral candidates. And then we closed it with just a one-on-one with me. And and I got interviewed by one of my friends, which was Amanda. And and then we have a real, like just hour-long conversation about the things that are important to me. So what's after city council, Carlos? Are you- <laughs> I've been getting that question, but to be honest, I got to figure out if I like this, right? Yeah. And, and my wife also, Mercedes has to sign off on anything and everything as you Absolutely. know. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, uh, so, but, but I'm keeping an open mind, man. I wanna see if we can make, make an impact in the community and see that it, where we go from there. I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk to you all. It's, it's awesome to see the community come together from you know, different experiences. These things matter, right? I think that I just wanna encourage folks to put themselves out there and put themselves in these races, these electoral races, right? That we need more representation at the end of the day. We're only gonna continue to move the needle if we're willing to, well, we need everyone, right? We need organizers we need activists, we need lawyers, we need elected officials, we need doctors, all of us moving towards creating systemic change. We just have to be open, we have to open to be willing to do it. We have to be willing to do it. Hey,
4: that's all we have for today. My name is Carlos Hernandez and on behalf of the Dysfunctionals, we want to thank you all for listening. Be sure to leave a comment on our podcast site, just search for The Reality Dysfunction on PodBeam or like us on our Reality Dysfunctional Facebook page. Best of all, share the episode. It's the gift that keeps on giving.
1: This is The Reality Dysfunction.
7: bonita que mirar a un pueblo reunido, que lucha cuando quiere mejorar, porque está decidido, no hay cosa más bonita que escuchar, en el canto de todos, un solo grito inmenso, tembra de, de
0: vida, Me mechiche de cuando
7: toda esta cabana va a ser pronto una sonrisa cuando todos regresemos a la misa campesina
0: cosa más bonita contemplar al la calero con sus cuatro chihuines y gaspar su alegre compañero y aquí puedo mirar al pescador presentación Ortiz con toda su familia cantando feliz el chiche de decir adiós cuando la alegría es
7: tanta aquí siento un toro en mitad de la garganta
0: pero todo esta cabana Hacer pronto una sonrisa
7: cuando todos regresemos a la misa campesina.
0: Siento nuevecito el corazón, lo siento canudo, Igual que la semilla en Marañón, cuando ya está de punto Ahora que regrese a mi lugar, repleto de alegría Voy a limpiar mi huerta con más devoción No es pues, decir adiós
7: cuando la alegría es tan, tan. Aquí siento un corozón Pero toda esta cabana va a ser pronto una sonrisa
0: Cuando todos regresemos
7: a la misa campesina
0: golpe de las palmas la canción va agarrando más fuerza para que en todos vibre la emoción y se haga más intensa al golpe de las palmas se sabrá que somos mucha gente y si estamos unidos nadie nos moverá el chique decir adiós cuando la alegría está nuevamente en este enorme lazo de hermandad de amor nicaragüense juntemos nuestras manos para hacer una muralla fuerte que defienda por siempre la comunidad no chiche decir adiós cuando la alegría es
7: tanta aquí siento un en mitad de la garganta pero toda esta cabana va a ser pronto una sonrisa no todos regresemos a la misa campesina.